This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 19th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. As I said last service, go ahead and figure out who's Brian 1 and who's Brian 2. All right, well, thank you for being with us. We're in Genesis chapter 43, and I'm going to read about half of it. I won't put it on the screen because I want you to open your Bibles. It's the first book of the Bible, so it's not difficult to find. And then I'll read the second half as we get through. Genesis 43. I'm actually going to read the first half, then I'm going to read the last verse. So first 14 verses, and then verse 34. Genesis 43 says this, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, being Joseph's brothers, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, should not see his face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully, but ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know what he, that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me and We'll arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you also are little ones. I'll be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of your land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it's an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May He send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So the men took his present, took the double money with them, Benjamin, they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now fast forward to the last verse. Last sentence, I should say. And they drank and were merry with him. That being Joseph's brothers and Joseph. And how we get there, I'll fill in the blanks. But the last verse of chapter 43 is powerful in light of everything that happens in this chapter and the chapter before You basically have 12 brothers sitting at a table feasting and eating, drinking, laughing, and enjoying one another. And you can only imagine in that moment perhaps what Joseph is feeling. Though he has yet to reveal himself, he will not reveal himself in this chapter, he is realizing or experiencing the very thing he has desired most for 13 years beyond reconciliation. We must remember that that Joseph did not have a good relationship 13 years ago with his brothers, even before he was sold into slavery. It was bad. 
He was the favored son. They didn't like him. They were angry at him. They were jealous of him. But now he is having this feast with his brothers. And we realize that experiencing this moment of probably pure joy that took 13 years to occur would not have been possible had he not experienced a tremendous amount of suffering. He probably would have never predicted this, never would have wanted this, never thought to myself, in order for me and my brothers to get along, we're going to have to go through this pain. I'm going to have to go through this pain. That's exactly what happened. And the truth is, we may never suffer as Joseph has suffered exactly, but without doubt, we'll all experience times of disillusionment in our lives, disappointment, even devastation. And these are the times that we never imagined would happen. The times that are unexpected, the times that are unwanted, the circumstances that we've heard about others experiencing, but we never thought we ourselves would ever experience. And it's the kind of pain that just robs you of joy. Certainly in that moment, but probably for lots of moments after that. And surprisingly and perhaps disturbingly, the Bible reveals that there's a significant relationship between joy and pain that should not be ignored. It puts joy and pain together. A very well-known passage you might be familiar with, James chapter 1. In his first epistle, the first words of his epistle are, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when things are hard. Count it all joy, my brothers, when unexpected, unwanted, uncomfortable things come into your life. Count it all joy when you meet, not if you meet, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now think about this. This is kind of how I read the Bible at times. I always ask myself, why does James have to say that? Why does Paul have to say that? Why does he have to warn us about this? Why does he have to you know, charge us to do that? Here James has to instruct us to intentionally connect joy with pain because we naturally won't. We naturally think pain is a bad thing. We naturally and understandably think pain is something to be avoided. But he says, consider all joy. That there's to be joy connected with this pain. That transformation, that growth, that change comes from responding to pain rightly. That shows that we usually, probably, most naturally, respond to pain wrongly. Whether it be our sin, whether it be our circumstances. When they cause pain, we often respond wrongly. And I go, well, how, how do we respond wrongly to it? Well, I think we res- there's always two ditches on the side of the road. And we fall into one or the other in regards to our pain, whether it come from our sin or circumstances. One ditch, if you will, one way to wrongly deal with our pain is to demonize it. And what do I mean by demonize it? I mean you imagine it is so horrible 
to actually press into that pain, to face that pain. You demonize your pain and you believe you will find joy by avoiding that pain altogether. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to go into it at all. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to refuse to face it. What you imagine that comes from confessing, comes from walking the light is so horrible that you avoid it. You demonize your pain. Then there's the other side, which we don't talk about very often, and I think is indicative of what Jacob is doing here. We idolize our pain. Instead of finding joy avoiding it, we actually find joy embracing it in a way that perhaps is too much. We keep our pain close and we dwell on our pain and we think about our pain and we let our pain govern us and even define who we are and dictate what we do or even excuse what we do. Now, those who demonize their pain and those who idolize their pain deal with their pain differently. And I think both wrongly, but they do deal with it differently and we probably find ourselves in that spectrum somewhere. But they have one thing in common. They do not go into the presence of the Lord with their pain. They do not believe that it's in the presence of the Lord that pain is relieved and joy is found. They believe joy is found by holding on to the pain or running from it. And God doesn't want us to do either. He wants us not to avoid or to dwell, but to actually come into His presence and bring our pain there and give it to Him. But it's hard to do. Now, if we watch the brothers, they have given us a very good picture of what it means to demonize your pain and avoid it for 13 years. It's really important. 13 years. Despite the guilt that they feel, and we know that they feel that guilt because when their confession comes out, they're revealing really what they have felt, what they've probably thought about for 13 years. It hasn't just been something they forgot. It has sat with them. It's been a pit in their stomach. What they did to their brother was wrong. So they have their own feelings. They're like, oh, I don't want to, I'm not going to think about it. No, let's keep that away. Then they have, if you think about it, the sadness of their father. So they have watched their father for 13 years be broken over the loss of their, his favorite son, Joseph. And you can imagine, maybe even the first week, they may have felt bad. Oh, guys, what did we do? You know, we could probably make this right. No! Have you seen Dad? He'll kill us. Maybe a month passes. Man, Dad is not recovering from this. Maybe it would be better... If we, if, we, if we just brought it to light, if we went and looked for Joseph, if we, if we made it right. No way. No way. They refuse to face it. They avoid it. They don't want to think about it. And even when God brings a global flood, 
blood. Global famine to starve them to the point of death. They still don't want to, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going into my past. I'm not going down to Egypt to the point where his dad's like, why aren't you guys going down to Egypt? They're just standing around looking at each other, doing nothing, but the truth was they were doing something. They were doing everything they could to avoid talking about and facing their sin. Facing a mistake they made. Facing brokenness that they had in their past. It was too painful to face. What they imagined was too hellish if they were to bring into the light. So much so that they believed the pain of facing their sin was actually greater than the pain of certain death from their families. So they never talked about Egypt. They never mentioned Joseph. They never talked about God until God made it too painful for them not to. That's an amazing thing to think about where God makes it too painful for them not to face their pain. And so they eventually leave as we saw last week. They go down to the man that they will call multiple times the Lord of the land. They don't know it's Joseph, but they go before the Lord of the land and He speaks to them roughly. He, in a very real way, lays down the law so hard that it moves them, it stirs them to confess their sin. It has its effect. There is a place to just speak hard truth, and in this case, it does stir in them to go, man, we did wrong, and they confess their sin, but they only do so privately. And in many ways, Joseph, this picture of Joseph that we get in the Scriptures is intended to give us a picture of how God deals with us. That when you walk into the presence of the Lord hiding sin, it's only a matter of time before it comes out. That the presence of the Lord has this sanctifying effect on us that, that we have to be transparent. That, that His holiness, that His perfection draws it out of us and as these guys sit, if you think about it, in the presence of the Lord, and they're hearing Him speak, and hearing Him declare, and hearing Him make His demands, they don't see who He is. They don't really know that He is Joseph, but just being in His presence reveals their brokenness, moves them to confess their weakness, moves them to acknowledge their sin. And though they don't see this, right? If they knew it was Joseph, what they imagine is if we were to just tell you what we've done, that they would be hated. That they would be punished. Like, if I'm just to own up to what I did, it's going to be so horrible. And we have that same approach to the Lord. Where we believe that if I were to confess my sins, if I were to bring this into light, God's going to hate me. And you know if you feel that way, if you imagine... The secret that you have right now, the thing that you regret that you have never faced, you have never confessed, and you just imagine, what does the Lord look like if I were to confess that? Is He? You did what? Right? Is that it? Is He just like, is it, is it a face of disappointment? Like, how could you? Right? What is it? 
What is, what is the experience that, that prevents you? Because it's bad, whatever it is. But the beauty of it, Joseph, as a portrayal of the Lord, shows us exactly how he responds to people who are broken before him. He weeps. He weeps. He didn't say like, <laughs> yeah, I know. You're so horrible, right? He goes, arms wide open. I love you. Now, Joseph hasn't revealed himself yet, but that is a picture of what God's done. These guys have demonized their sin, demonized it's so bad, like they're so fearful to face it. And they believe that joy is outside, but these guys don't sound very joyful. But then you get Jacob. And that's where I want to focus on a little bit more today. Because in the same way God uses pain to make the brothers deal with their dishonesty, He's going to use pain to have Jacob deal with his idolatry. And it's not just to, to punish them, it's to bring him into his presence. Joseph's goal is to bring his entire family into his presence. And that is God's goal with us. Eventually, the brothers, as we saw, return to Canaan minus one, um, yeah, return to Canaan minus one brother. Simeon is bound up and has to stay there. And they have been instructed by the Lord of the land, whom they call him that multiple times, that you need to bring back your younger brother to prove that you are honest and not spies. And so when they get home and they tell their dad this story, he is not happy. He is, what did you do? You told them what? Yeah, we got to bring back Benjamin in order to get Simeon unbound. Because like, no way! I've lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. There's no way I'm losing Benny. Benny is my boy. And I'm not, I can't even imagine losing him. Super important. Throughout the entire exchange, when you hear Jacob talking, you'll hear, you've got to read it carefully, but you'll notice he talks about himself constantly. He's merely concerned with his pain. It's similar to when Levi and Simeon, so those are two of his sons, when they went and basically slaughtered an entire city to revenge the rape of their sister, when it's reported that that happened, Jacob only talks about how it affected him. Several chapters ago, but he hears about it, he says, you have brought trouble upon me. You've made me stink to these people. They're going to they're gonna be mean to me now. Me, 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 my, me. That's Jacob. And even here, again, right? He's like, look what's fallen upon me and what's come against me and my sons are lost and I'm going to be bereaved and I'm going to go down to the grave. Jacob and his pain are at the center of Jacob's life. His decisions about what to do and why to do it are, are affected by how or determined by how it will affect him. Now, what's interesting is that Rachel, so this was Jacob's favored wife. He had multiple wives, but the first wife he took was, or wanted to take, was Rachel. He ended up taking Leah first. 
but he worked additional time to have Rachel, whom he truly loved. And she only gave birth to two sons. She gave birth to Joseph, and she gave birth to Benjamin. And when she gave birth to Benjamin, she died in childbirth. But with her dying breath, Rachel had given Benjamin a particular name. It wasn't Benjamin. It was Ben-Oni, which means son of my pain. So Ben's name really means pain. And now in a very literal sense, Jacob refuses to let go of his pain. He's going to keep it close. Whatever it represents, whatever he remembers, even if it means being saved from starvation, he will not give away his pain. He can't, it's more painful to imagine giving away his pain than it is keeping it. In a sense, and yes, it's, it's symbolic, it's figurative, but he has found comfort living with his pain. Bringing it closer. Not avoiding it like his sons have done. For Jacob, the loss of Rachel was, was really bad, but the loss of Joseph was so devastating that now he finds his identity and his worth and his hope and his security and his joy in keeping that pain close, that memory close. So much so it's governing his decisions. Now, I ask, have you ever met anyone like that? And maybe I should ask, have you ever been like that? Because it's easy to start thinking about other people. But idolizing pain. Um, many of us have mistakenly, and myself included at different times in different ways, um, have mistakenly idolized our sin or idolized tragedy in our life to the point where it becomes our identity. And this is the kind of person, Miguel, now I'll talk about it in like, you know, this kind of person, so you don't have to like, you know, think I'm talking to you, but if you get stirred, I'm talking to you. This is someone who filters every experience through that one experience. That one bad decision, that one major mistake you made, or that tragedy that came in your life. The one who is really quick to share their story about that without you asking. The one who reminds you of their pain at every opportunity. It's the filter for everything that they do and say. And sometimes they do it in jest. Kind of in joking. Oh, you know, still single, you know. <laughs> you know me, Lord's doing something. You're like, yeah, you talk about that a lot. Right? I'm the widow. I'm the recovered addict. I am the blank survivor. Oh, I remember I went through this. I went to this church. Had this experience. It's, it's not, and again, I know in saying that it makes me sound flippant. Like I'm, like I'm minimizing the genuine hurt of whatever experience it was. I don't want to do that. But what I do want to ask or challenge us all is to consider what do we lead with? What is the primary source of our hope and our joy and the way that we define ourselves and the way we make decisions? Is there potentially 
a lens there, a, a piece of pain that we're holding on way too tightly and it's dictating way too much in our life. See, some people demonize their pain and just refuse to deal with it. And then there's others that idolize it and elevate it to a place where it shouldn't be. We do one or the other with lots of things. More than once you see Jacob say, I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved, I'm sad. This means I'm sad. I'm de- I've been deprived of this person typically. And, and I have this hole in my life and this absence has, has it hurts. I'm so grieved. And the thing about it is it seems like um, he's been grieving for 13 years. And I'm not trying to tell someone that they shouldn't grieve for a certain amount of time, but um, he's been thinking about it, talking about it, dwelling on it, letting it govern him for 13 years in a way that's unhealthy. And now when the point where he can, he's being asked to surrender it, he can't because his life is defined by this loss. And to give this up makes it that much more painful. The one thing that has saved him from what was hellish is now being having to be given away and, and it's creating for him a worse hell. This thing has saved me. This thing is like, man, I, I, this is who I am, who I've defined myself as. And it's interesting to me, um, we all have a, a, a trophy room of idols. And in that trophy room, kind of carved in that, you know, they like shape a little spot that's a little special with some set lights and stuff, right? And it's like the big, the big idol. And when you walk in, that one's lit up, and you're like, oh, that's the one, that's the victory right there. I remember when this happened. But if you were to turn the lights up everywhere, maybe turn that light down, you would see the room is full of idols. And I've dealt with a lot of, um, obviously as a pastor, I, I, people confess their sins and we talk about things that, that have plagued them. And it's amazing how many guys, for example, this is just one aspect, uh, have, have struggled with uh, sexual purity. And then there are those who have experienced freedom in that, but they never cease to talk about it though. And that becomes the thing that defines their life. That becomes the thing that they are known for. And it doesn't, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't talk about that, but sometimes you might be holding on to that pain too much because it's defining too much of you. And as much as you nailed to the cross, it's like, yeah, you might have nailed it and buried it, but you keep wanting to dig it back up again. And so, that's what Jacob, I feel like, is doing. He, he, doesn't, he can't bear to think about letting it go. It's become too important to him. And and there is a time certainly where that remembering that, remembering the victory, remembering like what has happened, even some of the painful things that were difficult and you got through, like that can be life-giving at times. But at some point it becomes life-taking. Jacob's not a joyful dude. He is not joyful. In truth, I think he's forgotten who he is. He has forgotten the promises of God. He has forgotten what his purpose perhaps is in this world. But Jacob is loved so much by God, he makes it too painful for him to hold on to the pain that he has loved for years. And so the, the text begins by saying the famine begins severe. Like it gets worse. It's not getting better. It's getting more painful. 
and the Lord is going to deprive him more so that he can revive him completely. They're out of food. And Jacob says, hey boys, go back to Egypt, get some food. And Judah, what we see is a, we have this picture, right, of before they went to Egypt, boys demonized their sin. Jacob idolizing this evil pain that he's experienced. And now you're going to see a change in the boys. Of, of what it looks like when someone actually experiences transformation or begins to. Because Judah tells him, hey, Dad, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin. In many ways, unless we take your pain, Dad, we can't be saved. Which is true. Joseph has said, don't come back here or I'll kill you. And so, Judah is fearful. I would argue he is fearful of the Lord now. Call it the Lord of the land. He says, look, if we don't take him down there, um, we're all going to die. And if we don't go down there, then we're all going to die. Um, so we got to go. And it's interesting though, because Judah, it was the ringleader. Judah was the one who had the plan to put Joseph in the pit to begin with. Judah was the one who said, hey, let's sell him. Make some money off this. So imagine if Joseph is just an Egyptian dude, he's never seen Benjamin. So why doesn't Judah, who's been lying to his own father for 13 years, just grab Jethro, the camel servant, and bring him down and say, here's Ben. Why not? It's as if Judah is like, I need to be honest now. I need to do what's right now. He has changed. He looks at his sin differently, and it's even more than that, right? This guy who's lied to his father for 13 years is unwilling to lie to a stranger. Where Judah once found joy in doing what is wrong, he is now perhaps finding joy, even if it's through fear, doing what is right. Where once Judah found joy in hiding in the darkness, now he wants to walk in the light. But think about this. Where once Judah found joy in exploiting others for personal benefit, he says here in the text, Dad, I'll take personal responsibility for Benjamin. And if something happens to him, you can kill me. It will be mine to be blamed forever. That's a different guy. Judah was the guy who lied. Judah was the guy who's like, I'm going to exploit Joseph, my brother, make money off him. And now he's like, I will put my life on the line for Benjamin. And you go, what a changed? And I'm convinced that he came into the presence of the Lord. That being in the presence of the Lord is what changed him. See, we, we think that being in the presence of the Lord is this place of like euphoric, like amazing joy. Which it is, but not before it gets a little painful. So Jacob relents. He lets his boys go. He gives them this gift. He says, bring double payment for the money that they think you stole probably. And you can take 
Benjamin down. And then Jacob says something I think is very intriguing. He says it in verse 13. He says, Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And then verse 14, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. Jacob is beginning to change. He doesn't call the man the Lord of the land. He calls him the man. And he reveals his true hope And he speaks about God for the first time perhaps in 13 years. And he says, God Almighty, may He be merciful and send back Simeon and Benjamin to me. This is not simply a recognition of God's sovereignty. It is a recognition of God's sovereignty. It is recognizing that it's not about this guy, whether he releases him or not. It's not about me doing the perfect plan It's simply about me acknowledging that God is in control. Go so far as to say, and if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. That's a picture of someone who's ready to go into the presence of God. If this is going to hurt more, let it hurt more. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved of my children. Let Almighty God show mercy. That is not just an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, it's an acknowledgement of trust and surrender to His sovereignty. Thy will be done, God. Thy will be done. Well, let's read the rest of the chapter and see how it works out. Beginning in verse 15, probably verse 16. It says this, as they're coming over the hills, when Joseph sees Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought into the house so he can beat us up and fall on us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of the house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, We came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know what happened. And he replied, so this is like the main butler, Joseph's right-hand man, who knows everything and is speaking for Joseph. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Isn't that amazing? That's called grace. Pure grace. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed their feet and given their donkeys food. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, They brought into the house to him the present that they had with him, and they bowed down to the ground. Important. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, not our dad, your servant, our father as well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Again, important. And he lifted up, his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? 
God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. Entered his chamber and wept there. And when he washed his face, he came out, controlling himself, he said, Serve the food! Serve the food! Right? They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for it's an abomination. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to birthright, the youngest according to his use. So they lined them up, youngest, oldest. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Like, how did he know that? Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portions was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and partied all night long. Okay? Now, what you see here at the end, in the second half, is a picture of transformation. A picture of what it looks like when someone is ready and experiences the presence of God. Where instead of finding joy in trying to avoid sin and brokenness and hardship or, or trying to embrace it too much, they find joy in just walking in the light and being in the presence of God. These guys make their way to Egypt and they intentionally go into literally the presence of the Lord of the land. And this time they are not hiding anything. In fact, they're actually hoping that their pain is taken away. They hope that they will be received. They hope that they will be forgiven because they're not sure, right? They have the money. They hope they'll be reunited with their brother. They hope they will be saved. They hope they will find joy in His presence. And as they come before Joseph, I believe their brothers give us a picture of how one is truly affected in the presence of God. First, we see there people or brothers who are full of fear. And you go, how do you know it's the fear of God that I'm full of? How do I know it's just not scared? Well, in the presence of God, there's actually joy in confession. There's joy in acknowledging what it is perhaps only you know. And instead of avoiding it, instead of fighting it, you confess. Like, Joseph and his brothers are seen at a distance and the guy says, bring him into the house, right? That's Joseph, that's the Lord saying, bring him in closer. And they're scared. We're going to be that close to... He, he's, he's bringing us in to, to whoop us good. And so, think about this. Without being questioned, without being challenged, without them saying anything at all, they said, we have something to tell you. And he tells them about the money. And again, imagine their fears, their worst fears. Oh, we're going to get so beat up by this. But because of the joy, I believe, the joy becomes more powerful than the fear. And they confess. And instead of getting beat up, they receive grace. Oh no, that was the Lord. He gave you that treasure. I got paid. You know what happens when someone experiences confession and they're received and forgiven? It becomes easier to confess. When you understand that the Lord is ready to show grace, 
you become more eager to, oh, you know everything? I'm going to acknowledge everything right now before you even ask. You're moved by it. The closer we are to God, the more easier you are to live in a transparent, light-walking way. But that's not the only thing these brothers see. In the presence of God, you see a people or a group of guys that have been so transformed by His presence, they are humble. They actually find joy in submission. Now, again, think about this. After the steward tells them to get paid, you got, we, I got paid, don't worry about that. Then, he just lobs on more grace. Let me get some water for you guys to cleanse yourself. Let me get some food for your donkeys. Here's your brother. So it's just like blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So at this point, their fears are assuaged. They know that they're not going into the house. They're not coming into the presence to get a spanking. They've been invited in. They are being loved. They are, it's hospitality. But even though it's hospitality, even though they are experiencing grace, what is the reaction when Joseph walks in? Head down. They bow before him. They submit to him. If we're not careful, our confession, like live in the light, it can actually make us prideful. As opposed to letting the grace of God so stir you that you're on your face before Him. As He asks them about their dad, well, tell me, how's your, how's your father? Your servant? He's well. And then it says again, and they were bowed and prostrate. So they're laid out flat before Him knowing they're not going to be punished. Knowing that He is basically showing them grace. Is this your brother? How oh, may the Lord show him grace. And what do you see Joseph do? Weeps. Can you imagine? Benjamin was probably 10 years old when he last saw him. And now he's probably 23. 10 and 23 is a big difference. And Joseph is moved deeply. His brothers are there answering his questions on their face. And Joseph is fight, running to find a place. They all sit separate. Joseph, because of his rank, sitting here. The Egyptians sitting here because they don't dare eat with the Hebrews because they're an abomination. So they're all separated. But we get the sense that Joseph, well, we do see that his food is given to the Hebrews. And you get the sense that he ends up eating with them. But he gives Benjamin a five times bigger portion. Okay, so imagine all the brothers sitting there. Now, again, these are the brothers where this whole experience started when dad gave Joseph a coat. And they didn't like it. When they left to go back, and something actually that Jacob said about Benjamin, this is actually before they went back, when they first arrived at home, they said, we got to take Benjamin back. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'll have no one left. Well, you got ten sons here also. Remember us? Right, so 
that favoritism is, is still there. And it's how easy for them to get angry and get jealous. So imagine now, Joseph's like, oh, let's see. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Like he just starts piling on the food. Benjamin's like, sweet. What are the rest of the guys doing? What the? But they don't do that. They never do that. Being in the presence of God has actually given them, I think, compassion. But it's not compassion in the sense that like, oh, I'm compassionate towards you. It is, maybe it's better described as gratefulness when someone else has shown compassion. Right? What the boys hated the most and what maybe is a struggle for us, I know it's a struggle for me, is when things feel difficult for me and someone else gets graced. Instead of me being grateful to the Lord for what I have, I get angry about what they have. That's transformation. Because the story ends with them feasting and partying and being merry, even though Benzman's got like five times as much stuff. Whatever! Woo! That's a sweet pile of food, man! Yeah! They're joyful. They're joyful to be together. They're joyful to be in the presence of God. They're joyful to be walking in the light. Gratefulness has characterized them, especially as kindness fell on someone else. And so, as we close it up for ourselves, like how, how do we find that joy? Because again, where we began was like it's so easy to find joy in avoiding our pain or, or holding on to it too tightly. Our flesh is going to tell us and lie to us that there is no joy in confession. No, 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 don't say anything. It's better to hide it. Our flesh is going to tell us that there's, there's no joy in submission. Rule yourselves. Just do what you want. Do what's best for you. Our flesh is going to tell us like there's no joy in gratefulness, especially not when other people's you know, prosper and you don't. Compare yourself. It's only good if it blesses you. That's where Jacob was. Did you know the Bible says that those three things, self-deceit, self-rule, and self-centeredness are actually the cause of pain. That's the heart of sin. Self-deceit, self-rule, and self-centeredness. These are the very things that keep you away from the presence of God. The very lies that were told in the Garden of Eden. And what we need to understand is like, how, how do we come into the presence of God? Well, you come into it with confidence, Hebrews tells us. Because something has been done to make all things right. And that is Jesus. Jesus has come knowing all of your sin, all of your brokenness, all the things you try to hide, and all the things you're trying to hold on to. like, give me that! Let me put it on the cross and bury it and define you not by what has happened in the past, but what I have done. Jesus left the presence of God so that we might be welcomed into it with Him. And Hebrews 12 tells us an amazing thing. It tells us to look to Jesus, the perfecter and founder of our faith, who for the joy, there's that word again, joy, 
who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, let me just end with this little thought that's so powerful. Jesus left the presence of God so that we could be brought into his presence. And why did he do that? For the joy that was set before him. Well, what was the joy? The joy was our redemption. The Lord found joy in our redemption. Which means I can find joy in my confession. I can find joy in my submission. I can find joy in His compassion for me. I'm not going to avoid my sin and demonize it. I'm not going to idolize my sin and make something of it. I'm just simply going to confess my sin and bring it to the Lord because, as the psalmist says, in His presence is the fullness of joy. And how does the story end our story? It ends the same way Joseph's did. With a feast. Where we all sit as brothers and sisters at the table. And we sit in a place without sin. Without shame. Without guilt. Fully known and free. And this is what this table points to. Right now, we don't experience it fully. Right now, we still come to the table and the Lord still invites us to confess. And He still offers grace upon grace. He doesn't come here and go, you better eat this table. You better eat this. He goes, come. Live free. Live in joy. Live in forgiveness. Live in my grace. This is a symbol or a picture of a future feast that will come. But right now, we keep coming back to the cross. And we keep confessing our sins. And He keeps cleansing us until that day where we're fully cleansed and with Him partying up in the most amazing way. We look forward to that day. Let's pray.